Uh, my name is Ben. I'm glad to be with you this morning. Pro tip, uh, we're going to take communion at the end of the message today. So if you didn't get a, a cup on your way in, maybe sneak back there and get one now. We'd uh, like to have you experience communion with us today as well. In 2001, uh, I was on staff at Brownsburg Christian Church, which is now called Connection Point over in Brownsburg, Indiana. And uh, 2001, we were still Brownsburg Christian Church on the west side of Indianapolis. I can remember on my drive into work one Tuesday morning listening to the radio as I usually did and hearing about uh, an airplane that had crashed into one of the towers of the World Trade Center. And by the time I got to the office, the rest of the church staff was... Uh, there huddled around a very small TV and we watched together as the second airplane shortly thereafter ran into the south tower of the World Trade Center. And that night, um, our church opened our doors to the community for people to come and to process and to pray. And, uh, and the church building was packed. We set up every chair we owned in the auditorium and it was still standing room only that night. It was like everyone from our community, from all different walks of life, all different faiths had uh, come to our building that night looking for answers. And this wasn't unique to our church or to our community. The same kind of thing happened in churches all over the country. And Tim Keller notes that his church in New York went from normal attendance of about 2,800 that Sunday following 9-11 to over 5,400 people. Uh, again, just coming in and, and looking for answers. By some estimates, half of the adults in the United States attended church services that week and that following weekend. But it didn't last. Uh, for most, by September of 2002, church attendance was back to where it was before the attack. And many believe that that this happened, that the church attendance wasn't sustained because people didn't find the answer that they were looking for. They came in asking the question why, but they didn't find uh, the answer to that question. And I wonder this morning, when was the last time you asked the question why? Uh, when was the last time that, uh, that you maybe looked to heaven and you just asked God why? Why me? Why now? Why this? Why would something like this happen? Why would you allow something like this to happen? We've likely all asked that question at one point or another. Because when things go suddenly wrong and life kicks the legs out from underneath us, we all have this, uh, this kind of tendency to turn our attention heavenward and, uh, and to ask God the question, why? Matthew's gospel actually tells us that Jesus himself had the same response as he was dying on the cross. Jesus, who knew before the creation of the world that he would die for the sins of humanity, Jesus, who had predicted his own death and told his own disciples about it multiple times, Jesus, who, who now was hanging on the cross and, and in the middle of immense suffering and pain, he cried out, my God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? And he knew why, but in his humanity and in the middle of unspeakable suffering, he cried out to his father and he asked the same question we ask, why? But the problem comes in not, not just because we ask the question why, it's okay to ask God why, but the, the problem is that we then oftentimes just move our focus just within the, the realm of our own lives and we begin searching ourselves for the answer to that question. And we start asking things like, what, what did I do wrong? Where did I, where did I go off track here? Is this something that, that I caused? Was this my fault? And the temptation will always be there. Uh, to examine the, the pain and the suffering that we go through in this life, just within the context of, of our own actions. 
That's the kind of thing, actually, that we find in the book of Job. And if you're reading along with us in the planted reading plan, you started reading the story of Job just a few days ago. And so this morning, we're going to look at Job's story. We're actually going to look at the entire story. And so there are some spoiler alerts ahead for you uh, if you haven't read the story of Job before. But if you brought a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to turn uh, maybe to somewhere around Job chapter 38. We're going to spend most of our time on the back end of Job's story But you know if you're reading with us that the book begins by describing a scene that's unfolding in heaven. God is holding court in heaven. He's there with some of his angels, and there's also a fallen angel who is present. We come to know him as Satan in the story. And God uh, takes a moment to recognize his righteous servant Job. We're told that Job was a man who feared God and shunned evil. But Satan suggests that Job is only doing that because he, he's been blessed his whole life. He says that if anything bad were to happen to Job, he would immediately renounce you, God. He, he wouldn't stick around if you allowed me to afflict him. And so God says, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to allow that. And he allows Satan to go and to afflict Job. Satan destroys Job's property. He destroys his livestock. He kills all of Job's kids. And then he afflicts Job physically, leaving open sores all over his entire body. And then the next 36 chapters of the book of Job contain a conversation mostly between Job and his friends where they wrestle back and forth with why this happened. What, what, what could have possibly happened to bring this on? The friends actually assume that Job must have sinned. That Job, there has to be something. You must have done something wrong. You should just confess it, get it out in the open. And when you do that, maybe God will relent. And and Job says, no, I'm not going to say that because there's nothing. I didn't do anything wrong. He just absolutely demands that he's innocent. And we find that Job's wife also isn't very much help. Her best contribution to the conversation is, hey, Job, you should curse God and die. Well, thanks, honey. Like, <laughs> right? I love you too. By the way, don't you think it's strange that Satan left Job's wife alone? I mean, he takes every good thing from Job's life, but he leaves his wife. Maybe her words show us why. Whose team is she on anyway? Curse God and die? But then we get to chapter 38, and this is where God breaks into the conversation. He breaks his silence, and while Job was hoping for an answer, instead, God asks even more questions, 64 questions, in fact, uh, to be exact. He's, he's asking things to Job, like, hey, Job, where were you when I was shaping the earth? Jo- Job, what, what were you up to when I was creating stars and putting them into constellations? And he asks some seemingly strange questions, like, Job, what do you know about the reproductive habits of goats? It, it's in there, I promise you. Or, or Job, can you tell me why ostriches are so dumb? That's in there too. And when you read it, you might wonder, like, what, what's the point of all of this? Well, the point is to show perspective. What God is wanting Job to realize is, is the fact that, Job, you can't even fathom the mystery of these really simple things like goats and stars and ostriches. How in the world do you expect to understand my infinite wisdom? You see, the assumption that Job and his friends were working off of was that they had plenty of information to come to some kind of conclusion about why this was happening. 
that, that they knew enough about the world and enough about God that, that they could come to any conclusion that they needed to, when in reality their perspective was severely limited. They couldn't even understand the simplest of things, yet they figured they could reduce God down to a simple math equation. But in chapter 40, God gets to the heart of the matter and he tells Job this. He says, brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? And Job, recognizing that he is wrong and has been wrong, replies in chapter 42. And he says, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. And then pretty quickly, the book ends. I mean, we read that, that God restores to Job uh, all that he had taken from him. In fact, he gives him double what he had had before. But we never get a clear answer to the question, why? But what the book of Job does give us is a clearer picture of the character and the nature of God. And I want to highlight some things this morning that the story of Job teaches us about God's nature. And these are things that, like Job, when we see them and when we know them and we believe them, they have the power to help us endure any suffering that might come our way. If you're taking notes, the first thing that I notice is this. In the book of Job, we see that God's power is supreme. God's power is absolutely supreme. He has absolute power over everything. Power over creation, power over humanity, over angels. Even Satan himself does nothing except by God's permission. In that opening scene of, of the book of Job, we find that Satan cannot touch Job without first getting clearance from God. That's why he comes to plead his case. But God has to, to release that to the devil before he can take any action at all. Now, that's important for us to note because there's a, a philosophy today that's known as dualism. And it's actually a, a, an old philosophy. Uh, it says that good and evil are opposite but equal powers. Okay? And this plays out in a lot of different ways and a lot of different worldviews. But one example of dualism is found uh, and illustrated within Chinese culture in what's called the yin-yang. And many of you will be familiar with this symbol. Yin is the black side, it represents evil. Yang is the white side, representing good. And they're displayed as complementary to each other, like a hand and a glove. And, and they're displayed as being in perfect balance with one another. Neither is greater, both are necessary. That's dualism. But the Word of God teaches something entirely different. When we read in Genesis chapter 1 that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, that is a euphemism for all things. Okay, God created all things. And this includes the angelic beings of which Satan used to be one. And the fact that Satan was created by God means that he is under God's authority and control. He is powerful for sure, but his power is nowhere close to being equal to the power of Almighty God. He's under God's control. Martin Luther once famously said that even the devil is God's devil. And he cannot operate outside of God's sovereign power. Now, it's also important to note that the fact that God created Satan does not in any way make God culpable for evil. Like everything else in creation, when Satan was created, he was created very good. And how a, a very good part of God's creation 
could turn evil when there was no pre-existing evil in creation, how something like that could happen is a mystery to us. I cannot explain that to you. But one thing that I do know for sure is this. God cannot be tempted with evil, nor does he tempt us with evil. We read that in James 1.13. And 1 John 1.5 tells us that God is light. In him is no darkness at all. God is not culpable for the evil that's in this world. R.C. Sprawl wrote this. He said that God rules over Satan without himself being guilty of sin is a hard truth, but it's also comforting. It tells us that what we suffer from, the devil, his demons, and all evil, is not purposeless, but will lead to our good and God's glory. And that truth is so important for us to remember as followers of Jesus Christ. Because in the midst of the devil's attacks, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that God will not let us be tempted beyond what we can bear. And while we might be in the middle of of some kind of suffering or temptation or whatever it might be, and we might question the boundaries that God has put around that temptation, what we can know for sure is that God's power is supreme. And all of the temptation we will ever experience in this life happens within a controlled environment. Again, even the devil is God's devil, and he does nothing without God's approval. And God uses the devil however he pleases to fulfill his good and perfect will, because God's power is supreme. Now, here's the second thing I think we can see in the book of Job, and it's the fact that God's perspective is complete. God's perspective is complete. After 37 chapters of back and forth between Job and his friends, God asked Job a point-blank question. And I want you to hear how it's stated in chapter 42, verse 3 in the New Living Translation. God asked this. He says, Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? And we read that, and we maybe put our own modern-day way of thinking and talking into that, and we think that God is trying to uh, disrespect Job, or we think that he's trying to belittle Job here. But the reality is, the word ignorance, even though we would use that to say you're ignorant and we would mean it that way, the word ignorance simply means a, a lack of knowledge, a lack of, a lack of wisdom, a lack of understanding. What God is saying is you're questioning my wisdom, but you lack perspective. One modern day example of questioning God's wisdom with ignorance is found in what philosophers call the problem of evil. The problem of evil, uh, the simplified version of it goes simply something like this. It, It would be to say that if God were powerful, then he could end suffering. And if God were were all loving, then he would end suffering. But since suffering exists, he must be neither. And if God is neither all powerful nor all loving, then he in very definition is not God and, and therefore God doesn't exist. Okay, that's a really simple, dumbed down, ignorant version of the problem of evil. Okay, And for many, the problem of evil is the reason why they simply cannot believe in God. They look at all of the suffering in this world, all of the bad things that that have occurred to others and maybe to themselves, and they say, there's no way I could believe in a God that would, would allow something like that. He must not exist. But the missing premise within the philosophy of the problem of evil is wisdom. Because it would have to follow that if God is all-loving and all-powerful, that he is also all-wise. And that premise is not found in the problem of evil. Let me, ex- let me explain this to you. Uh, just, just think through this with me for a second. Okay, in point number one, we looked at the fact that God's power is supreme. We see that in the book of Job. 
Everything is under his power. That being the case, how much greater is God's power than yours? And maybe you're here this morning and you're not even ready to, to believe that there is a God. That's okay. I'm glad you're here. Um, but just go with me on this one, okay? If there is a God, and it is the God of the Bible, who reread spoke a word and the entire universe came into being, how much power would it take for, for that to happen? Astronomers estimate the number of stars at over one septillion. And I didn't even know that was a kind of number before this last week, if I'm being completely honest with you. That's more than 3,000 billion trillion, okay? It's a, it's a three with 24 zeros after it. It's an enormous number. That's how many stars are, are in the known universe. Now, if you're like me, numbers like million and billion and trillion, they, they really mean nothing. Like, I don't really know how big that is. So maybe this will be helpful to you. It's helpful for me. When you think about one million seconds ago, do you know how long ago one million seconds ago was? What would you think? What would you say? Did somebody say something? Maybe you're talking to somebody else. <laughs> one million seconds ago was two Wednesdays ago. Okay, 11 days ago was 1 million seconds ago. What about a billion seconds ago? How long ago was that? Saturday, September 23rd, 1989 was a billion seconds ago. Okay, 31 years and eight months ago. And Steve Wallen looked like this. Okay? <laughs> a billion seconds ago, Steve Wallen was hot in that picture. Okay, that's a billion seconds ago. How about a trillion seconds ago? How long ago was a trillion seconds ago? A hundred years ago? Maybe a thousand years ago? Not even close. A trillion seconds ago was 29,670 BC. Okay, over 31,000 years ago is a trillion seconds ago. So you can see that these are just enormous numbers, right? When we talk about 3,000 billion trillion, that's a number we can't even get our mind around, but that's the number of stars that are believed to be in the known universe. And again, Genesis 1 teaches that all of them were created just with the word from the biblical God. Okay, that's the kind of power that we're talking about. Now compare that to your power or compare it to my power. I do about 20 air squats and I'm ready to pass out, okay? <laughs> Uh, I unload maybe four bags of softener salt from the back of my truck into my garage and I'm ready for a nap. That's, that's my power. It's not even worth comparing with God's power, right? Because his power is so supreme. So it would seem reasonable that if God's power is that much higher than my power, that his wisdom would also be that much higher than my wisdom. And the most rational conclusion would then be that there are some things that God does that are beyond my immediate ability to understand. And when we look at the problem of evil and we say, well, a loving God would end all suffering and, a and an all-powerful God, you know, uh, would be able to end all suffering, but we don't bring into the fact that he is also all-wise and he might have a purpose for our suffering that we just can't see because our minds aren't as smart as his minds. Well, that's a problem, isn't it? And it's ignorant, as the text says, to assume that with our limited human knowledge, we would be able to perceive every purpose of an infinitely wise God. Our perspective is limited. His perspective is complete. And Job finally recognized this truth 
And in response, he said this, the second half of verse 3. He said, I was talking about things I knew nothing about, things far too wonderful for me. That's what we're talking about when we talk about God's perspective being complete. In other words, I didn't realize how limited I am and how great you are, God. Now, uh, I want to just reiterate, the problem is not in asking why God. When suffering comes, it is okay for us to ask why. But when we ask it, we cannot forget who we're asking it of and the fact that his power is supreme and his perspective is complete. Here's the third thing we see in the book of Job, and it's that God's purpose will prevail. One of the most encouraging things about this book is the fact that because of God's power and because of his complete perspective, even Satan's attacks only further God's purposes. Of all of the things that, that I studied this past week and putting this message together, of all the things I looked at and found, this is probably the, the most meaningful to me. And there's no way that Job could have known this in his lifetime outside of maybe God just miraculously showing it to him. But J.D. Greer points out in his book uh, titled, Your God's Too Small, he says, all of Satan's attacks on Job ultimately produced a book that has provided encouragement to countless believers throughout all of history. Have you ever considered that? Those of you who've been around church for a long time, you've heard the story of Job, have you ever considered that God took the suffering of this one man and then used his story to bring comfort to thousands of believers throughout the centuries. I don't think that's what Satan had in mind when he was inflicting Job with all this pain and suffering. But God's redeeming use of tragedy and suffering and what Satan intends for evil is seen throughout Scripture, but nowhere better illustrated than at the end of each of the gospel accounts. If there was ever a moment when it looked like evil had won and Satan had prevailed, it was on Good Friday, when, as the old hymn says, on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. See, God took what seemed to be the worst day and he worked it into being the best day as Satan's strategy to defeat Christ instead flipped around to provide salvation for mankind and to complete God's purpose. That's what God does. He takes what Satan intends for evil and he uses it for good. And Paul makes it clear in Romans chapter 8 that if you love God, he's doing that same thing with your suffering. You may not be able to see it right now. Job certainly couldn't. His family was gone. His livelihood was gone. His health was gone. But God's purpose will always prevail. And he has promised to work all things together for the good of those who love him. That's sometimes easier for us to say than it is for us to believe, isn't it? And it can be hard to know what good purpose is being accomplished through our suffering, but don't ever believe the lie that your suffering is evidence that God doesn't love you or that he has abandoned you. His purpose will prevail. Here's the fourth truth we see in the book of Job. It's that God's promise is eternal. One of the passages that stands out to me from Job's back and forth interaction with his friends is found in chapter 19. And uh, in this passage, it's, it's amazing that he says these things 
when we understand the depth of his suffering and we understand just how bleak his situation was, but he had the clarity of mind to say this. In verse 25, Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. That phrase, in the end, throughout the Old Testament is used as a euphemism for eternity. He's, po- he's talking about eternity. He's thinking with an eternal perspective. And the final verses of the final chapter of Job's story tells us of God's restoring Job, again, double all of the, that he had lost. And it's a picture of what God will do for his bride, for his church in eternity, when we will be completely restored and God will give us perfect joy. Psalm 1611 illustrates this when it says that, that God, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Think about that for a minute. Fullness of joy. It's joy that that could not be any greater, right? Pleasures forevermore. It's, It's joy that couldn't last any longer. And then on the other hand, James tells us in the New Testament that our lives on earth are just like a mist. The sun comes up and it just disappears. They go away. And Paul refers to our suffering as light and momentary. Why, why would these guys say these things? Is it because they, didn't, they just lived easy lives? They didn't know what suffering was? Well, quite the, the contrary. But they knew that God's promise was eternal. And as followers of Jesus, focusing on the eternal is what gets us through the suffering and the pain of this temporary life. It was the exact same for Jesus, y'all. The writer of Hebrews tells us, that it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross, scorning its shame. That word scorning means to think little of. Jesus went to the cross as brutal as that was. He he endured it as, as terrible as it was, thinking little of its shame. Why? For the joy that was set before him. And what was that joy? Heaven. It was the thought of being reunited with his father, Fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. God's promise is eternal. And when our hearts and our minds are set on eternity, it gives us what we need to endure the suffering of this life. There's one more thing I want to show you today from Job, and it's the fact that God's presence is guaranteed. There's another part of that Job 19 passage that's worth talking about. Uh, In verse 25, Job uses a word that tells us a lot about his view of God and specifically God's role in his suffering. Job refers to God as his redeemer. He says in that opening line, I know that my redeemer lives. And the word that's translated here as redeemer is the Hebrew word goel. And it's a word that, that you're likely familiar with if you're reading with us. We talked about it when we were in the book of Ruth. Uh, Boaz is found to be Ruth's Goel, her kinsman redeemer. Boaz plays that role by protecting Ruth and providing for Ruth and caring for Ruth. And uh, Dr. Stephen Lawson, who's a professor at the Master's Seminary, writes this about the Goel Redeemer. He says that Goel was a vindicator of one unjustly wronged. He was a defender of the oppressed, a champion of the suffering, an advocate of one unjustly accused. If you were ever wronged, a Goel would come and he would stand beside you as your champion and your advocate. That's the kind of word 
That's the kind of picture that Job used to describe God in the midst of his suffering. And G. Campbell Morgan points out in his commentary that when Job, amidst the desolation, declared that he had a goel, living and active, he was uttering a profound truth that in God, man had a redeemer in all the fullest senses of that great word. See, Job knew that he had a redeemer. He knew that he had someone to rescue him from his crisis and every accusation that his friends were bringing against him. And now, in light of what God has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ, we understand this to an even deeper level than Job ever could because we know that our Redeemer, Jesus, who was fully God, left his rightful place in heaven, took on flesh, and stood on this earth with us. He became like us in every way, yet without sin. He was tempted in every way, just as we are, and he experienced suffering just as we do. And he did it all to make a way for us to be redeemed. He took the punishment that your sin and mine deserved. He endured God's wrath poured out on him on the cross, a place where we should have been hung so that we would not have to endure it. Charles Spurgeon says this about Jesus as our Goel Redeemer. He wrote, Remember too that it was always considered to be the duty of the Goel not merely to redeem by price, but where that failed, to redeem by power. Both of these Christ hath wrought for us, by price, by his sacrifice upon the cross, and by power, by his divine spirit coming into our heart and renewing our soul. See, when you surrender your life to Christ, his powerful Holy Spirit moves in. It's the same spirit, the Bible tells us, that raised Christ up from the dead. And this is incredible because Jesus told his disciples that it was actually better for them that he would go away because when he left, he was going to send the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit would be with them and he would live in them. God's presence with believers in Jesus 24-7. Who is the Holy Spirit? He is our helper. He is our counselor. He is our comforter. He is our friend and he is a deposit guaranteeing our eternal inheritance in Christ. Folks, God's presence is guaranteed. In the midst of suffering, you can believe it, you can trust in it. I mentioned earlier that the Sunday after 9-11, Tim Keller's church nearly doubled in attendance, and that Sunday he preached a message out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where Paul says that, that we don't grieve the way that the world grieves. We don't grieve the way people grieve. We don't mourn the way they mourn when they have no hope. And in that message, Keller said this. He said, we don't know the reason that God allows evil and suffering to continue, but we know what the reason isn't. We know what the reason cannot be. It cannot be that he doesn't love us. It cannot be that he doesn't care. Why? Because he got involved with his son. Christianity alone tells us that God lost his son in an unjust attack. And in the midst of our suffering, we can know that God's power is supreme, that his perspective is complete, his purpose will prevail, his promise is eternal, and his presence is guaranteed. Job wanted an explanation. Instead, God offered him a revelation of himself. And in the end, it was enough. And this has been the experience of countless suffering believers throughout history. 
One such man lived in the 19th century, and his name was Horatio Spafford. Spafford and his wife, Anna, had invested in some real estate in the Chicago area in the spring of 1871. That same year, their four-year-old son developed pneumonia and tragically died. And then in October, the same year, the great Chicago fire broke out, destroying most of the Spafford's investments. Two years later, the family had planned a trip to Europe But Horatio was unable to go because of work demands and they had already lost so much and so he he sent his family along so that he could tend to business. But while crossing the Atlantic, the ship that his family was on collided with another ship, killing 226 people. Spafford's four daughters were included in that death count. His wife Anna alone was rescued and when she returned to shore, she sent a simple two-word telegram to her husband saved alone. Spafford boarded another ship to go and meet his grieving wife, and as he passed the spot where his daughters had drowned and died, he was inspired to write these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. How in the world could anyone come to that kind of resolution after experiencing the kind of things that this man had experienced? How in the world could you come to that conclusion, you know, having experienced that kind of suffering and pain? It's only because of the cross. It's only because of the cross. We may not always know exactly what God is doing in our pain, but the cross shows us what our suffering cannot mean. It cannot mean that God has forsaken us. And in this life, we may be wounded, but we can know that Christ was first wounded for us so that we could be eternally healed. And in this life, we may feel abandoned, but we can also know that Christ was abandoned for us so that we could be eternally embraced. And as I mentioned earlier, we're going to remember this morning what Christ did for us on the cross by celebrating communion. I want to invite you to take Uh, the cup out now and peel the top off of it. We know that the night when Jesus would be betrayed, that he was having one last meal with his disciples. And at that meal, he took one of the elements from the table, a loaf of bread, and he broke the bread. And he said, this bread now represents my body broken for you. And when you eat it, I want you to remember me. So I want to invite you this morning to eat the bread and remember Christ's body broken for you. And then Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup now represents my blood poured out for you. And when you drink it, I want you to remember me. And so I invite you this morning to drink the cup and remember Christ's blood poured out for you. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you so much for the precious gift of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, his humble spirit in coming to earth, becoming like his creation, his perfectly obedient life, 
laying that life down as a sacrifice for our sins, rising from the dead, giving us hope beyond the grave and the promise that he is coming again and that we will be with him and we will be with you forever. Joy to the fullest, pleasures forevermore. Thank you for that hope found only through the blood of Jesus. Father, I pray that if there are those here this morning who are in the middle of intense suffering and maybe they themselves have have looked to you and asked the question, why, Lord? I pray that the story of Job would provide them with some context, some meaning, some purpose, Father, for the suffering that they're in. And while we cannot understand all of the purposes that you might have for our suffering, what we know is what our suffering cannot mean. It cannot mean that you have forsaken us or forgotten us or left us unloved. The cross does not allow us to go there, Father. And so we cling tightly to it, even in the midst of the suffering. And we say, Father, you are enough. Be enough for us in this season of suffering. Thank you for Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and let's sing this one last song. It is well, it is well with my soul.